0: In today's episode of the Amon Wire Podcast, I really think that as parents and leaders in our communities, it is absolutely our responsibility to be solid and faithful and strong for our young people and to provide opportunities for them to come together and talk and share and talk about their fears, for women to talk about their fears of taking off hijab so that together we can decide not to, and for our youth to come together and talk about what it feels like to lose privilege because in essence that's really what's happened here.
1: We've seen the erosion, the steady erosion of civil liberties, you know, all these things are happening. But when we play into the sense of victimization, when we lend credence to that narrative, in in essence we're neutering ourselves because we're not allowing ourselves to really tap into our God-given potential to be agents of change. We're, We're basically turning over our moral agency to others, and this is not something that we want to do.
2: Welcome to another episode of uh, Iman Wire podcast uh, where uh, we have with us uh, two prominent uh, women scholars uh, in uh, Muslim America, uh, Sheikha Ansitam Gray uh, from Rabata Foundation and Ustada Zainab Ansari from uh, Taysir Seminary. Uh, we are very pleased to have you with us. Uh, my name is Ghaidar Bishmaf uh, from Al Medina and uh, with me is Salam Arif. We we are continuing our conversation uh, uh, from a previous uh, you know episode and uh, we are talking about uh, trying not to be a victim you know there's this phenomena of uh, you know uh, false reporting uh, or exaggerated reports uh, of racism or islamophobia attacks uh, discrimination especially among young muslims um, can you elaborate on uh, you know the uh, reasons um, behind uh, such phenomenon, and uh, is it the you know the political atmosphere that we're living in? Uh, is it the whole uh, you know kind of Islamophobia, kind of um, you know rise uh, slash uh, you know racism that's affecting almost uh, you know everybody, uh, if, if you will, the non-whites, um, you know, and therefore uh, something that's affecting the Muslims. Uh, in particular? Or is it like other things uh, when it comes to false reporting or when it comes to uh, exaggerated uh, kind of claims uh, of racism, Uh, uh, maybe attention-seeking behavior, maybe lying for a greater cause, uh, you know, quote-unquote, sympathy or support for Muslims, uh, kind of, uh, you know, attention-grabbing? What do you uh, ladies think about that?
0: Well, Uh, Yeah, I'll just go ahead and and start, Azana, if you don't mind. I I think that first of all, I'm we as a community. the, the, The environment today is really charged with both a lot of hate towards anyone who is an other, and by an other I mean anyone who is outside of the sort of master narrative or normative or dominant culture, and that's anyone, whether Muslim or Jew or a uh, Native American or black, a woman, even a white woman is, has, uh, women are more susceptible now to sexist har- or sexual harassment and all sorts of other and worse, uh, worse interactions. And all of the, but at the same time, there is a the countering uh, movement, which is the, ex- really people are trying their very best to be inclusive and to reach out and to be good to all of those who don't fit into what is normative, whatever that is, normative white culture, I guess we'll call that. So, and that's for everyone, not just for Muslims, but Muslims are unique because we have white, whitish Muslims have attempted to sort of fade in and fit into to dominant culture in the United States for many, many years. And we made a mistake, I believe, in our early days by not linking arms with the Black American Muslim community and working together to build one solid community. And so we we didn't learn from Black Americans the journey and story of civil rights and all of the important lessons to be learned from that story. And instead now we're like deer in in headlights, really in shock that, Oh wait, they don't like us. What's going on? And so as a result, we have both, we have both those who are really actually receive at the, they're at the receiving end of aggression, microaggression, uh, violence, hate speech, and all, and, and, all sorts of terrible things. And then we have those who are afraid of it, or maybe imagining it, or maybe they make it up, or maybe they just are wanting to to re- react in a certain way in order to get attention. Whatever it is, there's a real and serious problem. And this is this real and serious problem is going to be faced right now, whether we want to face it or not. And I believe there's great hope For this problem, I believe that this is a time in the United States where we will really move from a place where we had all of this sort of ugliness, but it was under the surface, to now that it's out, we're going to find the space to really. Like a sieve, you know, when you have flour and you've got all these little stones in it and you you shake, 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 all the flour goes down and the, the yucky stones that you don't want in your bread stay up. I think that's what's going to happen to American society. Those who are full of hate are going to be sifted out and they're just not going to find space for their hatred anymore. But it, we're we're going to have to work really hard to get to that place. And the hard work we're going to have to do is going to have to be focused on our worship, our own personal community building within our community, and we've got to stop being insular. We've got to get out of our communities. We've got to contribute to our wider community and neighborhoods where we live and really get to know our neighbors and let them get to know us, be open and vulnerable with them as well.
1: You know, th- this is, for you know, for me, when I, when I think about this issue of kind of false reporting, um, you know, the the ayah and Surah al Hajarat comes to mind Audimina Shaitan Rajim is Milah Rahman Rahim, Ya Ayyu Halevina Amanu, in Ja fasiqun Kumbinabayanu, and Tulsi tصيب, and Tulsi Bukoman be Jahadat in Futuspihu Alama Far Nadimin. And the the translation um of this verse this is uh verse six in um in chapter 49 is that, oh, you who believe if there comes to you a disobedient one, fasil, i.e. somebody of sort of compromised moral character or so on with information, investigate, right? Least you harm people out of ignorance and become over what you have done regretful. And um, what's so interesting is that when I see, um, you know, if, if this issue of maybe false reporting of of, uh, of hate crimes and so on, you know, it kind of, to me, kind of goes back to larger issues of um, the dissemination of false information, um, on the whole, uh, given the, the given sort of proliferation of false news websites and that type of thing on the internet, you know, we have, um, subhanAllah, I mean, we saw how, uh, you know, this sort of the dissemination of, of false news stories, and in, 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 in part actually swayed the result of, uh, you know, the result of the presidential election. You know, that anybody that is sort of has access to the, to a computer and, and the internet is able to just put all kinds of crazy baseless stuff out there. So I think what we need to understand as a community is that there is sadly this tendency, you know, um you know on the part of um, you know it, it this is the, the tendency the Nafs of the lower self to kind of dill in falsehood and uh and 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 riba and backbiting and namima and talebearing you know the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam you know warned his companions very sternly against dealing with al zoor you know basically bearing false witness and i think that you know we need to obviously if this is an issue in our community kind of turn the um, you know, the microscope on ourselves and say, "Look, you know, that Islamophobia. I mean, it's not something that anyone imagined. It exists. Hate crimes have spiked. Um, there are there are cases um, of of violence and uh, discrimination and persecution. And I think that when we sort of, for those who kind of dill in the manufactured stories, unfortunately, that's shifting the attention from 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 very real sort of." Cases of injustice that have actually taken place and that is kind of like draining resources away from those actual cases that exist. So this is something I think that we need to really um, be very mindful of and again, just understand, you know, that that there's a larger, I think, issue. Uh, there's an issue in the larger society, issues sort of, of of credibility and false reporting, and how people are kind of using the the medium, the internet, provides to really kind of further a, a particular agenda. That's one thing. And then the other thing is the 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 sort of when it comes to sort of the sense of victimization we need to be very 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 careful about that because yes um, you know there have been hate crimes there have been acts of violence i mean there are things that have happened for years you know at the legislative level that have targeted muslims there you know we have we've seen the erosion the steady erosion of civil liberties you know all these things are happening but we don't want to sort of play into the the sort of sense of cuz i think when when we when we when we give When we play into the sense of victimization, when we lend credence to that narrative, in in essence, we're neutering ourselves. Because we're not allowing ourselves to really tap into our God-given potential to be sort of agents of change. because when, when if I succumb to a victimhood or victimization narrative, I'm basically saying that anything I do it's just it's just it's, ine- it's ineffectual. I'm rendering myself sort of impotent and why would I want to do that to myself? So I think that we need to be very careful, I think, when we lend credence to this victimization narrative.
2: So, Tamara, I wanted to uh, you know kind of elaborate on this uh, uh, idea of uh, victimhood or victimization of uh, the Muslim community uh, and uh, to ask you about the spiritual dimension of this hyper reactivity that's uh, you know uh, been created since the um, uh, election building his campaign on a certain uh, you know uh, hateful messages against the Muslim community this hyper reactivity Uh, among Muslims, even in our own communities in Masajid that we've felt so far, uh, is kind of, uh, you know, creating this shockwave among the, uh, you know, younger generation uh, of Muslim Americans. Uh, What is it doing uh, to to our generation? And how do you think uh, we can kind of bounce off of that as a community spiritually?
0: Well, first of all, I wouldn't presume to know what it is doing to our community absolutely. i can I can predict and I can speak to some of the things that I've seen. And I really think that as parents and leaders in our communities, it is absolutely our responsibility to be solid and faithful and strong for our young people and to provide opportunities for them to come together and talk and share. And talk about their fears for women to talk about their fears of taking off hijab, so that together we can decide not to. And for our youth to come together and talk about what it feels like to lose privilege, because in essence, that's really what's happened here: is that privilege is being lost. Privilege that was at least assumed to to have had is now lost, and there's some fragility there and some some feelings uh, some feelings that are there. I I think that the effect if we are not careful as leaders to guide our young people then we will have a more fragmented community and we will have a community that really loses the sense of identity as muslims we're playing with fire here to be very careful and our leaders need to double we all need to double our efforts within our communities and without within our communities we need to double our efforts to provide safe and brave spaces a safe space is a place where everyone feels comfortable coming and a brave space is where not only do I feel comfortable coming there, but I feel comfortable speaking about my feelings when I get there. And that's one of my personal goals to create a brave space in Daybreak, the bookstore in Minneapolis. One of the ways we did that is the day after the election, I put on a social media, I'm going to be in Daybreak all day long if anyone wants to come. And we did have people come in and not only Muslims. Muslims and non-Muslims who came in and wanted to talk about this. So it was my job then not to worry about my feelings, but to be strong and calm for people coming in. And in the same way, our leadership needs to be strong and calm when we want to react. We need to talk in private with those who are our friends and, and uh, elders. But when we're dealing with our young people, we need to really be strong and positive with them. And provide those safe and brave spaces. And we have to remind them, this we are not the first community to face difficulty. Mormons faced it before us. Jews Jews faced it before us. Black people faced it before us. Native Americans are still facing it. Black people are still facing it. These are these are things that we need to join hands with other people to stop the ugliness in society of racism and Islamophobia and xenophobia and anything that is an othering. Really what we have to do is move away from this one master narrative and bring in the absent narratives of all people, including Muslims. But we have to help our Muslim children know their narrative, know their story and be proud of it and strong in it, or we'll lose them or they will lose that deep connection to who they are faith wise. And we'll also lose our opportunity then to reach out to those around us with a story. Cause if we don't have a story, then what are we talking to people about? So And by story, I don't mean something pretend. I mean that narrative of who we are, that narrative of who we are.
2: Right. And if I can uh, kind of uh, direct the uh, question uh, back to uh, uh, Sada Zainab, you know, given your experience in both uh, dealing with the community at large in your, um, you know, know, in your area and uh, uh, teaching academia, you know, back and forth, uh, we have this kind of uh, critique that uh, we kind of woke up to, uh, to our leadership and uh, to those who are in charge of the community, like, that we, we're living in a sort of a suburban Islam, you know, that comfort zone, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, or la-la land, so to speak, of uh, not putting uh, into place or not planning uh, what to do uh, to kind of equip our youngsters and ourselves uh, with uh, the means to kind of find uh, a way whenever we're challenged with such, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I guess, um, Islamophobia or any acts of racism, because on the other hand, you know, black Muslims, uh, in, in the, um, uh, in, in America, in American cities were like, welcome to the party. We've been dealing with this all our lives and you guys are just waking up now. Uh, so how do we kind of, um, uh, you know, maybe, uh, criticize or uh, or provide a positive constructive critique to our leadership to bounce back uh you know to the community and to provide uh, you know means for our children and our uh, our youth to not feel victimized
1: and that's a really good question brother ghaed and it's so interesting that you should that, you, that that you'd raise that that there is you know subhanallah that you know in in sort of um Living and working and visiting different communities and spending time in both suburban as well as urban environments. You know, one of the things that has uh, one of the things that, that 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 strikes me is is that there are. Subhanallah, that, that there are different concerns. So, the, so the the experiences and concerns of Muslims that live in sort of more privileged environments are very different from those that live in an underprivileged environments. Um, you know, so when I sat with African American sisters, for example, and this is, you know, Tamara is so correct. There's so much we can learn from the struggle of African Americans for for freedom and for dignity. You know, so when I sat with African American sisters in a more urban, sort of inner city environment. They weren't particularly concerned, and this was something very striking to me, that they'd been dealing with issues of sort of discrimination and these really systemic structural problems really all their lives. I mean, this was nothing new under the sun for them. And actually, what they were more concerned about was that they they were actually far more concerned about intra-Muslim unity that they wanted to be able to interact uh, with sisters from different ethnic backgrounds, that they wanted to be able to, they wanted to be given practical tools for healing their families and their communities. They wanted to be able to study and really kind of, really sort of learn their religion. These are the concerns they were sharing with me, right? And um, so I I was really struck by that. And I think what we need to do is that we need to understand that as dismaying as the the rise of sort of right-wing white nationalism is, this is nothing new. And I think we need to go back and examine American history. I think we need to look at sort of the, um, you know, I, need, I think we need to kind of examine the role of sort of. Of, of marginalized communities and those that are under underprivileged and kind of see you know how they've kind of negotiated um, issues of injustice and discrimination and it's very important that that we form alliances It's very important that we do step out of our comfort zone right and just kind of really listen to the concerns of um African American Muslims, Latino Muslims, the concerns of people, uh, Muslims who are coming into this country as refugees and not just within the Muslim community that we really need to sit with people in other communities who are who have experienced discrimination and injustice and, and disenfranchisement and really hear their voices and really consider how we can inshallah can how how we can help them, how we can be of assistance to them. Um, you know, I look at you know these examples of um, whether it's Muslims setting up, you know, clinics or other initiatives, and and how you know we can really make a lot of difference. I think when we just sort of say, look, you know, we're not going to worry about what these politicians are doing. We're not going to worry about the rhetoric, but we're actually going to do something on the ground to make a real difference. Um, you know, in these communities that are not being that are not being served. I think that you know for us subhanallah i think way forward is really in becoming involved in these struggles in a really meaningful way as opposed to sitting back and, and having our feelings hurt because you know a certain segment of society has decided that they don't like us well subhanallah there are a lot of people they don't like and they and 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 uh, and i think we need to really examine very closely the history of our country
2: uh, so, um, Ansitamra, when it comes to, to, um, to this, um, you know, uh, feedback that I just heard from, uh, you know, Ustada Zainab, what if we internalize uh, victimhood, you know, as a result, and we become more weak and unable to do what Ustada Zainab is telling us, you know, uh, that we should do as a community? If we do that how do we get out of it you know or how do we diagnose first that we are you know internalizing this and becoming weak in our reactions and even our plannings ahead
0: well here really are is a really good interesting question we can ask ourselves what happened to communities in the past that internalized victimhood And we might answer, well, I'm not sure. Can you give me an example? And one of the reasons that would be the question is because generally those communities die out. And Islamically, or let me say in Muslim history, history of Muslim peoples, we have not walked into the problem of victimhood, except for that we have walked away from important pieces of our faith. And the probably biggest example of victimhood is the colonial era, when what happened is that because in many spaces, not everywhere, but 80% of our countries were colonized. So in many spaces in those countries, we became colonized in our minds and in our hearts as well. And so a lot of the misogyny, for example, that we face in our communities is actually not originally part of Islam, but rather part of the colonial period and things we picked up from outside cultures. So one of the problems of victimhood is not just that we are weak, but that we lose our identity. We no longer know how to make decisions and think for ourselves as a community, but rather we sort of uh, shrink down into the desires and whims of whoever happens to have the power position. And considering that power right now is in the hands of those who hate, that would be community suicide. So this is a really serious issue. We absolutely have to take on the attitudes of our young people, our own attitudes, make sure we're not in the state of victimhood, but rather as full citizens of the United States, full Muslims, full followers of the Prophet with full joy and excitement about being that that person in that wonderful space of opportunity to share and grow and to link hands in hand, as the have said, with all the other communities in this country that also need to make sure. Well, they are not victims, but also are fighting the, these uh, this uh, the social injustice and the uh, legal battles so that they ensure that love wins and that uh, rights win and responsibility wins and that none of us fall into this space of victimhood.
1: My message ultimately is that when you, and this is something that I, that, that Auntie Tamara actually shared with, um, with us back in the summertime, if I, if I can, if I can share that with everybody here, that we have to think very carefully and um, very purposefully about the sort of story we'd like to write of our lives, whether it's as individuals or as a community writ large, that do we want the story of Islam in America and the story of Muslim communities to be a story of defeat and victimhood and despair, or do we want it to be a story of resilience and courage And strength and patience in the face of adversity. And I think it's going to be, inshallah, it's going to be the latter, that we responded to sort of vituperation with patience and with graciousness. And that we, when we had the opportunity to respond with harshness and with sort of retreating and becoming insular, that we reached out and we responded with kindness. And we took the higher path. And we can look at our history. We can look at our roots in every Muslim in the United States. I don't care what our ethnic background is. We need to look at the story of our ancestors in faith. These African men and women and children, you know, who were people, Muslims from West Africa who were enslaved and they were brought to various parts of um, the Americas, they were brought to, to South America, Central America, and North America. And they were separated from their family and community and traditions and stripped of their identity. But there was a resilience that they manifested. If you think about somebody like um, his name was Bilali Muhammad in Georgia, and he leaves behind a document handwritten document and remember we know what the position of the slave owner was towards the slave who was literate right we know what could happen to those who were enslaved if they were found to to be reading or writing or trying to acquire those skills but subhanallah this person leaves behind a document And since they didn't have any understanding of West African Islam and West African Muslims, they thought this was some kind of journal or diary, whatever they termed it. And then scholars later on realized that this man is actually writing down what he remembers from the Maliki fiqh, right? The Maliki law that he'd studied in West Africa. You know, and to me... These stories are so inspiring because, I mean, I can't, somehow, I can't imagine a more adverse set of circumstances than being enslaved. And even in the midst of those circumstances that he found the sort of resilience, right? To actually sit down and write and sort of, in, in, in a way, try to preserve his narrative and write a good and positive ending to his story for posterity. So that's what I want to say to all of us here. And this is what something I have to Tamar shared with us. What kind of, What kind of ending do we want to write to our story? Allah Ta'ala has given us, inshallah, the opportunity to write a really beautiful ending to our story, inshallah. With the rise of the Islamophobia, um, if you could give one sisterly message to um, all the girls who are scared and who are thinking about removing their uh, hijab because of what's going on, what what do you have to say to them? I know it's a tough question, so... (laughs) My message would be that we really have to look at this from from the standpoint of spirituality and yaqeen and understand that our our time in this world is it's finite and the difficulties that we're experiencing the pain the trauma the fear that all of these things as daunting as they appear are ephemeral and will pass and we must not let ourselves be deterred and and distracted by those who want to sort of capitalize on our vulnerability and our on our fear and it's very important i think at this point to really step back and ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ya rab iftah to just give us openings and to really draw from that reservoir, that spiritual reservoir of of strength and conviction and faith, as exemplified by the women forebears that we were discussing in the beginning of this conversation, that it might seem in some situations tempting to sort of modify our appearance or try to appear more quote-unquote mainstream. But subhanAllah, I don't think that it's our... I don't think that this is beneficial to us in the short term or long term to, you know, to, to sort of accommodate, right, to accommodate bigotry and intolerance and and hatred. Because, you know, subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran that, that those who oppose us, their agenda is for us to, to, to actually change who we are at our core. And their agenda is that we completely lose our way and dispense with our core principles and values. And I don't think that's the way forward for our community. We need to really look very carefully at the example of the Prophet wasallam, and see how he weathered and dealt with trials and tribulations and in my view this is not the time to sort of uh back down and try to blend in this is the time to really step up and really in a very healthy way embrace who we are as muslims and 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 celebrate who we are as muslims and adhere to the quran and the rope that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the the rope of um assistance, right? And help that Allah Ta'ala has told us to cling to and cling to the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and, uh, and, and be proud of what we can bring. This is, this is my message. Yeah,
0: and I, I agree with that 100%. I, we, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi which you look to when he got angry with his companions in Mecca, he didn't get angry very often in Mecca. And the one time was when they came to him losing patience in their trials. And the reason he was upset is, was not because they were weak, but rather because when you are, when you lose, when we lose patience with our trials, it's like we're saying that that which we are working for or living for just isn't important enough. And so my message to young women who are either not wearing hijab and considering wearing it, or are wearing hijab and are considering taking it off, or wearing hijab and considering changing the style that they wear so that it, as as Zainab said, so it fits in more, I say to them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to us in the Quran, when speaking about the hijab, that one of the purposes of the hijab is, أَنْ يَعْرِفْنَا هُلَا يُؤْذَيْنَ and that we must never forget that statement. And that connected to the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca and his strong response to the companions when they were getting a little whiny. is It, it should remind us both that, number one, it's not up to us to decide that, oh, well, actually, we're supposed to wear the hijab so that we're not hurt. So then if we're going to get hurt, we shouldn't wear it. No, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa said so that we will be known and not harmed. But we don't know what kind of harm that is. And certainly it is a spiritual harm to walk away from hijab. Absolutely. And for those who say, I'm closer to Allah now that I've taken it off, that's because shaitan has left them alone. He won. So he left them alone and he's allowing them now to not miss prayers. He's allowing them now to feel good about themselves. Oh, look at me. I'm actually praying now and I wasn't, I was missing Fajr every day uh, last week when I was wearing hijab. Of course, because shaitan has left them alone having won this particular battle. But he'll come back. He'll come back very soon and pretty soon the prayers will be gone and the hijab will be gone and the identity as a person of faith will be gone. And I'm not saying that they will walk away and say, I'm not a Muslim anymore. No. And I'm not saying that a person isn't a Muslim when they take off hijab. And I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that hijab and faith are intricately intertwined. And the woman who puts on hijab knows exactly what I'm talking about because there is a moment of clarity with her Lord. And the woman who takes off hijab knows what I'm talking about because though it won't happen right away, there will become a distancing between her and her Lord. And nothing is more important than our relationship with Allah. ﷻ. So hang on to that scarf. Let's not be cooked macaroni noodles in this world. Let's be women of the Prophet Let's be strong and clear. As Linda Sarsour says, unapologetically Muslim. I love that statement of hers. And uh, let's stand up and really make the Prophet proud and support the sisters around us and really we have our dawa responsibility to the world around us so it's really important that we get over ourselves and get over our little feelings of oh do people like us or not and push out into the world and start helping people and start representing our faith in all the different spaces of uh, social services and social help and
2: and all the rest uh, Subhanallah, what a beautiful example. Uh, this is the final question, inshallah, and I appreciate your time with us, uh, 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 Sayyidati. I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, bring it back to the uh, youngsters uh, and more of a, you know, a nasiha to the parents, educators, and mentors. You know, uh, uh, when we, uh, you know, find our uh, Muslim youngsters living in such, uh, you know, kind of polarizing times. We find sometimes uh, their reactions to be puzzling, you know, uh, You know, so, sort of, uh, uh, you know, maybe from, ranging from extreme sarcasm, you know, uh, pr- prank, pranking, like for instance, you know, in, in the general sense outside of this phenomenon is the norm, you know, uh, uh, living, uh, you know, vicariously through others or uh, through certain means of social media. What do you kind of um, advise um, parents, educators, et cetera, you know, to kind of navigate emotionally and spiritually, uh, you know, uh, our children?
0: I really think that uh, parents need to talk to their children and listen to them. And that's not always easy because kids don't want to talk. So we have to make up opportunities to do that. Car rides, um, dinner at the dinner time, vacations up north in the mountains where there isn't any Wi-Fi, um, just a dinner at a restaurant, time where it's face-to-face or side-to-side talking. In the kitchen, cooking is great. Getting the kids to the kitchen and cooking with you is a fantastic method of getting them to talk and listening, listening. We need to listen, listen, listen to our children. And secondly... I Would say that let's not forget about the importance of worship and let's, as we crave beautiful worship experiences, let's remember that our children need them too. And so, to provide them for them like, whatever, let's get up and pray with them in the morning, uh, make it a nice experience, not a yelling, get out of bed, but rather a, a tray with hot chocolate and whipped cream. And, because like, something I'd that's going to that. make them excited about – this is special time with my – even teenagers, they want that attention. So a beautiful tray with uh, something nice that they like to drink on it is going to really go a long way for that emotional and spiritual memory and experience. We have to – we're dealing with muscle memory here and life memory. And so we, there's an a Syrian Arabic expression, Ful uh, يَرْجَعَ who eats uh, ful, fava beans, goes back to their origins. And what it means is that whatever you're raised on, you'll go back to eventually, even if you walk away from it. So we really want to raise our children with a memory of spirituality, a memory of loving Allah, a memory of feeling that emotional connection, spiritual connection, and that emotional connection to their parents. And the last thing I'll say is, Moms, when you're angry at the dads, don't do that in front of the kids as much as you want get in the car and go talk about it. go somewhere else, but not in front of the children. and dads do not uh, insult or put down moms or their opinions in front of the kids. That is just gonna that's going to really cause emotional and spiritual breaks in the children and um, it's it's really damaging. And we can't then together build a family and a memory. And that's even if you're divorced, if you're divorced, still don't do it. Just, just, just don't do it. My parents are divorced. I never heard ever a negative word from my mother or my father about the other ever, never in my life. Did I hear something negative from one? In fact, all I heard were positive, respectful things. And I know, and that's not, and I know the divorce wasn't easy on the two of them, but they made it easy on us and that is, they're not Muslim. And certainly our responsibility as Muslims is to uphold our spouses or the, the parents of our children at all times in front of them to help build that emotional and spiritual memory, muscle memory in their hearts and minds.
1: So, you know, my advice, cause I have a, I have a, you know, I have a, a child who's actually approaching adolescence. And I just think we just have to really understand that, yes, there is this concept certainly of um, of taklif that when we, uh, when our young people come of age, that Islamically speaking, they are expected to pray and fast and so on. But at the same time, they're not miniature adults <laughs> even if we have the tendency to think okay they have to do these obligations now somehow they should be developed developmentally from an intellectual standpoint where we are as adults no i mean it, developmentally they're just not there yet you know the 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 adolescent brain is still there are still still critical areas when it comes to judgment and discernment that are that are kind of in development and um at the same time we need to understand that the adolescent himself or herself the young person himself or herself is really kind of they're kind of like straddling worlds right they're still very close obviously obviously to the memories of childhood and the emotions of childhood but you know, they're, they're, they're experiencing all kinds of sort of, you know, they're experiencing change biologically, physically, etc. And, um, and they very much crave a little bit of that sense of personhood and autonomy that, you know, is part and parcel of adulthood. So I think being really mindful of that, being sensitive to their needs. And like Anse said, that we have to be able to, um, You know, we have to be able to open up to our children. Our children need to be able to come to us with their concerns and their fears and their thoughts, no matter how, you know, embarrassing or awkward or sensitive that uh, we don't want them to sort of, uh, we don't want them to take this really critical, sensitive knowledge of self and awareness, you know, we don't want them trying to seek that out from peers or the internet or whatever. They have to be able to come to us that – and I remember, you know, these are experiences, you know, from my own youth that, you know, sometimes – There was an environment, um, that I, that I observed, especially amongst my peers, where they were not able to take things to their parents because the, the, if they had taken certain things to their parents, the response would have been astaghfirullah, we can't discuss that. So, and of course, astaghfirullah for all of our sins and mistakes and shortcomings, those of which we're aware and those of which we're not aware. But we have to be able to tackle these, um, difficult conversations with our children in a really loving I think non-judgmental way and I think also we have to and I you know and I and I and dealing with youth and subhanAllah answering um, hundreds if not thousands of questions from people all over the world um, pertaining to various family issues that we cannot lose sight of the redemptive power of toba you know, of 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 turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um in repentance and and in atonement and seeking to reinvent ourselves that the doors of Tawbah are not they're they're not they're not closed until we die. That we should never ever if, if someone and, and and youth is a time when we can be prone to certain mistakes and we should never um, judge our young people on the basis of a mistake or a sin or an error, right? That we need to let them have, remind them of, the, again, the, the hope and the solace that they can take from Toba and inshallah finding and becoming their, their better self. So these are some of the things that, that I'd like to share, inshallah ta'ala.
2: Allahu barik, And uh, I'm sure that kind of adds, you know, when you are empowered, uh, you know, to... Uh, Kind of um, take control of your own self and actions, you know. Uh, therefore, that will be also kind of a full circle on our uh, topic, uh, which which is to get you out of uh, feeling victimized. Um, uh, what do you think about that uh, as a final kind of thought?
1: Oh, definitely that that when when we sort of succumb to the. the the narrative of victimhood, what we're really doing is we're kind of like relinquishing power and we're sort of, in a way, empowering those who do not wish us well. And I think what we need to understand is that we have a responsibility, you know, to be, to really kind of embody that ethic of moral agency. That Allah Ta'ala reveals in the Quran, right? In in Surah Al-Baqarah, right? Allah says, you know, He says that He is placing in this world on this earth a Khalifa. And the angels counter and they say, Are you going to place uh, are you going to place in this in this in this earth, right, this human being who's going to uh, sort of shed blood and sow corruption? And so their 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 take their take on on the human being is a very negative one, but Allah Taala's take on the human being on his creation is a very positive one. And we need to remind ourselves of this, right? No matter how difficult the circumstances might appear, no matter the forces that appear to be arrayed against us, we have to hold fast to the rope of Allah Ta'ala and understand that each and every one of us has this responsibility of, of, of khilafah, of moral agency. And so when we succumb to the, the, the story of victimization, we're, we're basically turning over our moral agency to others. And this is not something that we want to do
2: yeah, thank you so much for bringing this uh, to that uh, um, probably the biggest umbrella of our existence on this uh, you know earth, which is the moral agency of Khilafah on behalf of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. So uh, I hope, inshallah, we benefit from your um, uh, wisdom, alhamdulillah, and uh, from uh, the valuable participation of Ansi Tamra Gray. So uh, on behalf of uh, everyone who's listening uh, and on behalf of our staff here at Iman Wire, uh, I really want to say Jazaki Khair and Jazaki Khair Ansi as well uh, for this valuable time and participation. And uh, that will conclude our podcast uh, uh, today with Iman Wire. And uh, inshallah, we'll see you soon. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.